Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Dozman. Seventy years ago, the philosopher Theodore Adorno and a team of scholars released a massive book titled The Authoritarian Personality, which attempted to map the psychological and emotional dynamics of those who might find themselves seduced by authoritarianism. The book synthesized both empirical psychology and sociology, relying on massive sets of data with psychoanalytic models of personality, so as to approach their subjects with a set of deep hermeneutic tools. The result is a book that is both data-driven and speculative, and covers a vast swath of theoretical territory. It was recently republished by Verso Books, with a new introduction by Peter Gordon. Here with me to discuss the book is Charles Clavey, a lecturer in social studies at Harvard University, whose research focuses on critical theory and the history of authoritarianism. His writing has appeared in a number of places, including Modern Intellectual History, the LA Review of Books, and the Chronicle of Higher Education. So, Charles Clavey, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. So we always like to have guests kind of introduce themselves, and you're doing a lot of work kind of around this book. So could you maybe tell listeners a bit about what your research tends to focus on? Sure. Um, As you said, my research does focus on critical theory and the history of authoritarianism. And I'm particularly interested in recovering the, the role that critical theory played in the development of empirical social science and vice versa. The role that empirical social science played in the role of development, uh, role of development of critical theory. Um, I think that both of those things have sort of been uh, disaggregated, and my job is to really to try to put them back together. So, authoritarian personality is one of the key sites where I, I see that happening. Wonderful. So, to start things off, this book has several contributors. The most famous being Theodore Adorno himself. So can you give us a brief introduction to who he was and what the key elements of his thought were and how this book fits within his broader critical endeavors? Yeah, so uh, Adorno is, uh, was a, a German philosopher. Um, he was also a trained musician, a sociologist, uh, a literary critic. He was born in 1903 and he died in 1969. He's best known as a member of the Institute for Social Research, which was an interdisciplinary research organization made up of um, a sort of new generation of Marxist scholars. It's better known now as the Frankfurt School and is famous as the sort of progenitor of critical theory. Adorno spent um, much of his career in exile in the United States during the Second World War. Uh, And both during that time and after, he was known for his contributions to epistemology and aesthetics. But his most famous book is certainly Dialectic of Enlightenment, which he co-wrote with Max Horkheimer, uh, and which was completed in 1944. Uh, Dialectic of Enlightenment really is the cornerstone of critical theory, motivated by the rise of fascism, and the explosion of mass culture, and, and what they perceive to be the decline of individuality. Horkheimer and Adorno tried to uh, find the underlying feature of Western thinking itself that was responsible for these developments. 
and they called this enlightenment thinking or instrumental rationality. And they argued that the, the same kind of logic that had liberated humanity from mythical thinking, that had taught it to control nature and set it on the path to flourishing, had sort of gone haywire. And they thought that now this logic was um, sort of overwhelming and subordinating humanity. Because Enlightenment thinking worked by making different things equivalent to one another, it made them comparable, controllable, tradable, and so on. But now it was doing the same thing to individuals. It was eliminating differences and making everything and everyone the same. Now, um, the reason I bring this up is because chronologically, Adorno was working on this book, Dialectic of Enlightenment, at exactly the same time he was working on the authoritarian personality. So in general, although there's a tendency to neglect a lot of the empirical research projects that Adorno worked on, there is, in the case of authoritarian personality, a kind of a consensus that this psychological book is the empirical counterpart to Dialectic of Enlightenment, that the theory of the one sort of um, reinforces the empirical findings of the other and vice versa. Um, and so, I, you know, as, as we go on, I'm sure this will become clear, but basically the claim is that authoritarians and authoritarianism are the kind of, ine kind of inevitable consequence of what Horkheimer and Adorno called the dialectic of enlightenment. All right. So Adorno had a number of collaborators helping him on this project. So can you tell us a bit about who they were and how they all came to work on this project together? Um, what was the institutional context that they were working in? So, um, yeah, I think it's important not to see this book as solely sort of an expression of, a, of Adorno's genius. And, and the easiest way to do that is to look at the institutional context, as you suggest. There were three institutions involved. The uh, Frankfurt School, which I mentioned, the American Jewish Committee, and the Berkeley Opinion Group. So the Frankfurt School, as I said before, was exiled in the United States during this period, split between California and New York City. And they were interested in the sociology and psychology of anti-Semitism. They had been since the late 1930s. And in fact, they were conducting multiple studies of anti-Semitism at the same time they were working on the authoritarian personality. And the lead representative of the Frankfurt School in the project was, uh, unsurprisingly, Adorno. Now, to fund these studies, the Frankfurt School uh, turned to the American Jewish Committee, which was, at that point, a half-century-old advocacy organization that had fought for civil liberties for American Jews and against uh, discrimination more generally. And like many advocacy organizations in this time, um, the AJC was looking to social science to find the tools to combat prejudice. Um, Horkheimer, the leader of the Frankfurt School, was actually at this moment the head of the uh, AJC's new scientific research division. And it was that division that really um, set the authoritarian personality in motion. So with this sort of commission to conduct a project, the Frankfurt School looked around for collaborators and, and they turned to the Berkeley Opinion Group. The Berkeley Opinion Group is sort of represents this, this um, development in mid-century American social science, which was an attempt to use psychological research techniques to understand how things like consumer preferences, voter attitudes, and public opinion took shape. Um, and it was informed by both developmental and personality psychology. And the three main representatives of that organization in the project were Nevitt Sanford, Elsa Frankel Brunswick, and Daniel Levinson. So these three researchers joined Adorno uh, and began conducting their research um, in early 1945. And if you look at the text, what you'll see is that it's actually sort of comprised of a number of 
individual interlocking studies. And the researchers sort of worked on these things uh, either individually or in groups and then actually wrote multiple sections of the text independently, but were all edited into this single volume. And I, I actually think that the sort of uh, most important uh, institutional fact here is that the authoritarian personality wasn't even a standalone volume. It was part of a series called Studies in Prejudice that was being overseen by the Frankfurt School and published by the American Jewish Committee. And so to taken together, these volumes were supposed to paint a comprehensive picture of the psychology and sociology of history of discrimination in both Europe and the United States. In the first pages of the book, the authors set up the core problem they're addressing, that of trying to map out the personal, emotional, and psychological dynamics of the potential fascist to map certain trends and patterns. Can you maybe unpack this a little bit and explain what this book is trying to achieve? Yeah, so being a historian, I I do love to talk about context. It's one of my vices, but I I think it really helps here. it's important for us to remember that at this moment, at the end of the Second World War and the immediate post-war period, it seemed to a lot of people, uh, both politicians and public intellectuals, that there was the danger of a kind of fascist movement in the post-war United States, that um, the economic conditions and social conditions um, were ripe for the development of a kind of either homegrown fascism or fascism imported from Europe. And it's also important to remember that at this time, there were a fair few number of fascist agitators, radio personalities like uh, Charles Coughlin, for instance, who disseminated fascist propaganda on the airwaves. And uh, these researchers who wrote this book were not alone in using social science to try to address this problem. And they took up the task in a very specific way by asking a question uh, that was at the time quite new, which is, how is it that an individual's personality leads them to adopt certain political ideologies? Specifically, the core problem was trying to identify and describe the personality of people who were susceptible to fascist propaganda. In the book's terms, those people, the ones who were susceptible, had authoritarian personalities. So a sort of terminological distinction is that while fascism is a sort of set political ideologies and a kind of regime. Authoritarianism is, in their view, a kind of psychological uh, or personality structure. And as the book progresses, the researchers examine various features of its subjects, so their prejudices, their memories of childhood, so on, in order to use those as evidence for their underlying personality structure. And again, the ultimate goal here was to develop and refine psychological instruments for finding authoritarian personalities. And their hope was that if they were successful in doing so, they could prevent authoritarian-leaning subjects from becoming out-and-out fascists in America. This book is filled with lots of charts and graphs and is clearly a very data-driven text that tried to use very rigorous modern sociological methods. And we'll get to that in a moment. But part of what sets this book apart from much contemporary research on psychology and sociology is its use of psychoanalytic theories of personality, particularly those of Sigmund Freud. So can you give us a sense of Freud's theory of personality and how it informs the work here? Yeah, so the place of Freud in this book is really interesting. 
the the researchers were very careful to qualify their sort of position within the field of psychology. But the, the basic orientation does come from Freud's ego psychology. In that framework, um, and this is probably familiar to most people here, that the childhood is the most important period of development, especially the relations between children and their parents. Um, during childhood, the ego or rational conscious mind um, sort of takes shape. And it does so in part by learning to control the id or the unconscious innate desires and drives. Initially, that control comes from authority figures external to the child. So, for example, parents who forbid the child from certain behaviors and, and thoughts. Over time, what Freud and other uh, personality psychologists argue is that the ego integrates this external authority into itself, and the external voice becomes um, what Freud calls the superego, but we might think of as the conscience. And so eventually the child uses the conscience to control its instincts and the ego becomes stronger as the children mature into adults. The basic side of a, uh, insight of authoritarian personality is that there are certain people who are predisposed to fascism um, and they were unable to accomplish this task of uh, internalizing authority and developing egos successfully. The parent's authority remains external to them as children. And authority in general is external to them as adults. So in Freudian terms, their ego is very weak. And we, we can imagine this quite sort of easily with a, a little thought experiment, which is, um, you know, when, when there's a child, the parents might forbid it from putting certain things in its mouth, right? And at first, the child is unsure what that rule actually is. What things am I allowed to put in my mouth? What can't I put in my mouth? And even when they learn... Um, what the rule is. They don't know why it exists. It seems both arbitrary and irrational to them. And it's enforced by the sort of all-powerful figure that is the parent, right? The parent literally has control over the child's life and death and for sort of the providing or withholding of love. And over time, the child does begin to learn what the rule is and why it exists. And by so doing, it internalizes the authority in itself and enforces the rule. For authoritarian personalities, however, that process never worked. It's like constantly being commanded by this kind of all-powerful God who's enforcing rules that you can't possibly comprehend. And there's a, there's a couple other things to draw attention to here. One is that, um, like Freud, the researchers in this book insisted that these uh, ego-weak children simultaneously worshipped authority and resented it. Um, and this is a sort of inherently unstable psychological situation. There's a constant need for the children to reinforce obedience and to ensure compliance. The child has to keep anything that could tempt it at arm's length because it's not really sure what it's allowed and what it's not allowed, and it doesn't want to risk punishment from the authority figure. And so when the child does perceive some kind of violation or witnesses it in another person, they vehemently or even violently enforce the rules. Over time, this becomes, uh, in Freud's terms, a sadomasochistic personality. The child learns to take pleasure in submission to authority and in joining with the authority to enforce the rules, even as um, it, it, on a deeper level, hates the authority. Now, I do want to point out that there's a couple interesting ways in which the researchers go beyond Freud. First um, is their argument that adults will display the same relationship to authority that they had as children. The main difference here, according to the researchers, is that instead of parental authority, the adults are 
connected to other sources of authority, for instance, social conventions or religious doctrines, um, traditions, political ideologies, and so forth. So the adults still have weak egos, and they still have to turn to the sources of these authority to figure out what's right and wrong, and they still have this kind of uh, sadomasochistic relationship to authority. It's just what that authority is that has changed. And the second uh, and uh, equally important difference from Freud is that whereas Freud thought that this whole process of psychological development was set in motion by the kind of psychosexual drama um, between children and their parents, the sort of famous Oedipal complex uh, in which the male child has a sexual desire for his mother, which is forbidden by the father, the researchers don't exactly deny that, but they look to a different sort of set of causes. Instead, they say that the most important forces affecting the child's psychological development are social, cultural, and economic, um, and how those economic forces are present in the household. So psychological development for them is shaped by society. And I do want to give a, an example of, of, of how that works, because I think it's really important takeaway from this book. Um, and this example is touched on in the text, but it's actually explored at length in a conference paper that the researchers published in 1946. So um, one of their samples was comprised of uh, middle-class, college-age women from San Francisco. And through the research process, the researchers found that many of the authoritarian-leaning subjects in this group were obsessed with manners. Um, they would return to the topic of manners often. They spoke about it at great length um, and with great vehemence, and it was connected to anti-democratic politics. So, for example, some of them would claim that groups who didn't follow certain conventions or manners um, should be punished or discriminated against. And the, the interviewers or the researchers were really interested in what the psychological importance here was. And they found through interviews that when these subjects had been young, their mothers had strictly enforced middle-class manners and often backed them up with threats of real violence or, or actual corporal punishment. So that's the dynamic that I mentioned just a moment ago. As children, the subjects couldn't understand the rules about manners, right, or why they existed, and they were terrified of crossing the line. So both the rule itself and the authority were external to the children. But the researchers went beyond that to try to make a connection between that psychological dynamic and the economy and society. And they argued in, in particular that when this group of children were young, which was during the Great Depression, their middle-class families were economically precarious. Uh, they risked slipping from the middle class into the lower middle class with a working class. So the economy creates this sort of tremendous sense of anxiety in the parents. But that anxiety is unconscious. The parents don't face it head on. And instead, it manifests itself in this sort of distorted way. The more the parents worry about losing their economic and class status, the more that they enforce what they take to be good middle-class manners. It's a sort of defense mechanism. Uh, we may be becoming poor, but at least we're going to act the right way, right? So the point here is, is that for these researchers, the economic system of capitalism creates an emotional state that's refracted through the prism of social conventions. And it's that economic and social nexus that plays a central role in the child's psychological development. And Finally, the thing to say here is that this isn't just a trifling dislike of bad table manners. For, for the researchers, this was really bound up with authoritarian politics, right? Because the people they interviewed believed that violations of these manners were grounds for prejudice, segregation, and, and murder even. Yeah, that's an excellent kind of introduction to that. 
Um, so to switch over and turn to the actual data collection, the authors here used a combination of individual group studies as well as both interviews and questionnaires. So can you tell us a bit about these methods as well as how they understood the significance of the data acquired in these different methods and how did they integrate these various sorts of data into a cohesive picture? I think that uh, if you're a sort of first-time reader of the, this book, um, the first thing you would notice is how many methods there are. Um, there are psychoanalytic interviews. Uh, there is projective testing, which is sort of like the, the Rorschach inkblot test. Um, but as you just pointed out, right, the, the most uh, important ones are the questionnaires or surveys and interviews. Um, and it's, I think, initially a little bit difficult to see how the questionnaires and the interviews uh, related to one another um, but they actually sort of feed into one another in a sequential process, which went something like this. Um, Adorno, who again was at work on dialectic of enlightenment at this time, took elements of the theory from that book and, and as he said, operationalized it. He adapted topics and hypotheses and arguments from that text, especially its fragment on antisemitism, to use in preliminary interviews and questionnaires. So those questionnaires, which are derived from critical theory, um, were then distributed, and the responses were refined and turned back into other questionnaires, which were then disseminated to other groups, and so on, right? So there's this continual process of refinement um, that has its origins in critical theory. And this process was supplemented by interviews with subjects who demonstrated sort of really extreme positions. Through the process, the researchers created questionnaires for specific topics like anti-Semitism, prejudice, conservative ideology, religious extremism. And for each set of questions, they developed a scale to go along with it. So the anti-Semitism scale, the ethnocentrism scale. And the, the one that they arrived at at the end was the fascism scale or the F scale. And, and this questionnaire was the one that was most directly gauged subjects underlying psychological authoritarianism. I think it's worth giving just a quick example of how that worked. So one item on the fascism scale was the following statement. Obedience and respect for authority are the most important virtues children should learn. So respondents were asked to rate the degree to which they agreed or disagreed with that statement, numerically, from plus three to minus three. Now, that statement itself was a product of earlier interviews and and so on. And In keeping with the psychological theory behind the study, the researchers thought that the degree to which the respondents agreed or disagreed with that statement would reveal the structure of their psyches. So in this example, if the subjects insisted strongly on obedience in children, it would show that A, when they were children, they had been forced to be obedient, and B, that that um, enforced obedience remained external to them. So they would have a weak ego or likely to have an authoritarian personality. So researchers basically um, added up all these various scores on different questionnaires and um, used statistics to construct a typology, a a nine-category typology uh, or a spectrum that ranged from uh, authoritarian at one end to anti-authoritarian or liberal at the other end, and they sorted subjects into categories along this spectrum. And so my larger point here is that um, this F-scale really is what gives coherence to the whole project. Everything else in the book either leads up to its development or was an attempt to expand upon or refine or verify that scale. And actually, 
it's the F scale that's the real legacy of the authoritarian personality too, because in the years after the book was published, it was used in dozens, if not hundreds of, of projects in political psychology and sociology. So it's something that was very much with American social science and, uh, for the subsequent decades. One of the key themes throughout the book is studying the nature of anti-Semitic ideology, which the authors see as one of the best ways into understanding authoritarianism. How do the authors understand anti-Semitism here, and what is it about anti-Semitism that sets it apart from other forms of racism or marginalization as kind of a unique way into uh, authoritarianism? Yeah, so... um... It's a really interesting question. As as I said before, anti-Semitism was a topic of interest to the Frankfurt School for a variety of reasons, and had been since the late 1930s. Um, they had other research projects into anti-Semitism that were concurrent with the authoritarian personality. M- more broadly, um, anti-Semitism was a topic that was of real interest to social and human scientists in this period, um, both post-war or post-war both wartime uh, psychoanalysts who had emigrated from europe and american trained sociologists um alike all all these sort of groups were trying to investigate anti-semitism as a psychological and social problem um in part to help the war effort um but one reason that anti-semitism was so central is is that it's integral to nazi ideology so other researchers connected to the Frankfurt School, besides Adorno, had argued that anti-Semitism was the, the quote-unquote spearhead of fascist ideology, that it would sort of be the first vanguard assault on democracy. There's one reason it's really important to understand anti-Semitism. Another distinguishing feature was how central anti-Semitism was to dialectic of enlightenment's argument. For Horkheimer and Adorno, anti-Semitism was the, mani- the ultimate manifestation of enlightenment thinking. That had uh, it showed that Enlightenment thinking had, as they say, culminated in madness. The irrational demand that everyone and everything become the same was made apparent in the anti-Semites' assertion simultaneously. Right, so anti-Semites, anti-Semites said both that Jews are inherently and permanently other to Gentiles, and that they must assimilate and become like Gentiles. So that contradiction, that cognitive dissonance was, for Horkheimer and Adorno, the theoretical key to the problem of enlightenment rationality, right? It's the the way into this problem of um, standardization. Um, And again, as I said a a second ago, um, Adorno is translating parts of dialectic of enlightenment, uh, not really translating, sort of theoretically translating them into uh, empirical terms for use in the authoritarian personality. And in that sense, anti-Semitism functions as a kind of proof of concept for the whole study. The researchers thought that through the analysis of anti-Semitism, they could make a strong argument that a certain personality structure was predisposed to certain ideological beliefs. So anti-Semitism, in their view, was an ideology that had an emotional appeal or filled a psychological need for some people. Um, but I guess it's it's important to say about a little more about the specific connection between anti-Semitism and authoritarianism. So one of the things that the researchers found was that high-scoring subjects, uh, or as they call them, high-scorers, which basically means people who are predisposed to authoritarianism, uh, were strongly anti-Semitic, that they thought of Jews as threatening the American way of life, as immoral, as irreconcilably different from Christian Americans, and so on. 
And some expressed troubling views about how this quote unquote problem uh, could be solved, right? So they suggested segregating Jews or preventing Jewish Christian intermarriage and forcing Jews to give up um, keeping kosher, for example. And those kinds of claims, the researchers argue, implied that these people were at least amenable to uh, the kinds of uh, anti-Jewish discrimination that was practiced in Nazi Germany and other fascist countries, right? So uh, anti-Semitism gives an indication that people are open to uh, fascism. The more interesting fact here, though, is about the structure of national social, or sorry, of anti-Semitic ideology. Uh, so in interpreting their interviews with extreme anti-Semites, the researchers found that the subjects view Jews through stereotypes. On, on the surface, that's not that surprising. But what was surprising was that the researchers found that anti-Semites could only see Jews in that way. They could not see other uh, could not see Jews as real individuals. And this led to one of the most important arguments of the book, um, that those with authoritarian personalities, because of the way their personalities developed in childhood, could not others understand other people as individuals. They could only see them as members of some kind of groups or as embodiments of some kind of stereotype. They, they were really unable to perceive people as people. <sighs> Another key element of authoritarian or fascistic personalities is ethnocentrism, which is going to be related at times to anti-Semitism, but the authors connect it to a variety of other elements of their subjects' lives, such as their religious beliefs, their socioeconomic stature, and even the jobs they have and the way they view those jobs. So can you give us a sense of how ethnocentrism functions in their models of personality here? Uh, yeah, so... As you said, um, the argument about ethnocentrism uh, is connected to the argument about anti-Semitism, and that goes back to what I was saying about the process by which the study took shape. Uh, after the researchers sort of successfully, in their view, tested um, their scale of anti-Semitism, they thought, okay, can we generalize this and apply it to a different topic? And the topic was eth ethnocentrism. And the, the term ethnocentrism, uh, which which is sort of a, a standard concept of 20th century American sociology and psychology, uh, they understood to be more all-encompassing than something like racism because it looks at multiple kinds of prejudice. So for instance, prejudice against people from other races, but also prejudice against people from other regions um, or other countries or other religions that was bound up with this sense of ethnic identity. So that was something like uh, a subject who might say, um, I am a German-American, a Californian, an Anglo-Saxon, and an American. And each of those identities contained a sort of ethnic claim. And it suggested, according to the researchers, an in-group, people who are like me, and an out-group, people who are not like me, right? And that in-group, out-group distinction becomes a way that these subjects code every single thing they encounter in the world. This is something that people like me do, this is something that people like me don't do. Um, and the empirical data that the researchers got about ethnocentrism was a little bit murkier than the data that they got about anti-Semitism. And they had to do a little bit more sort of interpretive work to figure out what role it played in the personality. But what they argued was that ethnocentric subjects, so subjects who were likely to see or likely to report um, sort of the salience of ethnic identity to them, uh, saw the whole world through the lens of groups. They didn't really see either 
discrete individuals or some sort of collective humanity. Instead, they only saw people as members of one group or another. And almost inevitably, this kind of in-group, out-group distinction led into um, these competitive uh, all-or-nothing views of the world. So, for instance, an ethnocentric subject might say, uh, I am an Anglo-Saxon, the Anglo-Saxon way of life must thrive, and it can only do so at the expense of these other groups. Um, and so it, it increases this kind of sense of competition and an almost conspiratorial view of politics. But what's really significant about ethnocentrism in terms of the structure of the book's argument is that it shows the dual nature of what happens as children development. First, parents hand down specific ethnocentric views to their children. They tell the child, for example, we belong to these groups and not those groups. This is something that people in our group do, and this is something that people in our group don't do. And just as in the example with manners earlier, this is these sorts of views are almost impossible for the child to internalize, and they're backed up with this authority that remains external to them. And as the child matures, they take this, this set of beliefs along with them. At the same time, it's not just the specific content that matters, but also the pattern of thinking. So by teaching children we are part of this group and not part of that group, what the parents say is group distinctions matter. And it's that pattern of thinking that's almost impossible to eradicate from the adult personality. Um, and, and so with this argument about ethnocentrism, the researchers are really starting to cut to the heart of, of the structure of the psychology of, of, of the authoritarian. Yeah. So that kind of, you've done an excellent job of kind of setting up the frameworks and key terms and ideas in play here to start unpacking some of the results of these studies. Let's turn to views on the family. One of the things they looked at was people's memories of their childhood and the family environments they were raised. And you talked a bit about this when discussing psychoanalytic theories. Um, but what were the parallels between one's childhood memories or their memories of their parents and siblings and the personal potential for authoritarianism or fascism? Right. So um, given the sort of psychological underpinnings of the study, it's not surprising that they were interested in memories about childhood. And um, what they found was that high scoring subjects, uh, those who are you know, uh, anti-Semitic or ethnocentric, um, when they were interviewed, they, they initially often glorified their parents and then they would subsequently criticize them. But what's important is that they didn't realize that they were criticizing them. So, for example, I, I pulled this quote from the book. A subject says of his father, uh, he has a marvelous personality and gets along well with people. He has a hot temper. Now, that might not seem particularly interesting to us, but to the researchers, what it showed was um, the ability to quickly switch from this kind of glorification of the father to this critique of the father. And more, more important, the subject did not realize that he had critiqued his father. He couldn't admit that uh, he had done so consciously or rationally. So one reason that this insight is significant is that it appears to confirm the psychological theory underlying the whole project. Uh, intense glorification um, was one symptom of a child's authoritarian relationship uh, to their parents. As children, this, the, the subjects had been unable to criticize the parental authority without risking uh, again, the withholding of love or the provision of care. Um, and even as adults, they were still unable to formulate those critiques rationally or consciously. In, um, in Freudian terms, 
this kind of criticism was uh, not ego accepted or it was ego alien. And this is connected to the argument that uh, developed in the accounts of anti-Semitism and ethnocentrism from the fact that high scoring subjects were unable to take nuanced views of their parents. They couldn't admit their weaknesses and flaws. The researchers argued that those with authoritarian personalities were really unable to even consider evidence about the world at all. So this is to say that the psychological dynamics at work inside of them kind of overrode the input of empirical information about the world. Um, Authoritarian subjects were so stylized in their thinking about their parents that they could not admit that their parents had flaws. They were, they were perfect paragons of virtue. Um, an additional reason this is really so important is that, or the, rather the interview material about parents is so important, is because it provides evidence about how the authoritarian personality is transmitted over time. Um, often, inadvertently, uh, in their interviews, when talking about their parents, authoritarian subjects would reveal that they were doing the same thing to their children that their parents had done to them because they had not grown up with a kind of strong ego that was capable of internalizing authority and controlling its impulses. They couldn't model that behavior for their children. So the researchers start to argue that this is a kind of a personality that can really be handed down over time from generation to generation. Moving along, the authors look at attitudes around sex and sexuality, which they manage to connect to politics since this allows them to draw various sorts of connections around how one relates to others as well as to oneself, one's ability to be open and vulnerable or intimate versus one's need to be in control. So what were some of the general trends they found in people's attitudes towards sex and the implications of those? So. Basically, the empirical evidence from questionnaires and from interviews and from the other sorts of testing showed that subjects with authoritarian personalities had highly conventional views about sexual desires and sexual practices, uh, where conventional here means for mid-century America. It also showed that these subjects were um, prone to police the perceived boundaries between normal and quote-unquote deviant practices. Uh, fiercely, right? So for example, um, one of the items on the F scale was a statement to the effect that those guilty of sex crimes should endure public whipping. And people who ident- or people who expressed authoritarianism agreed strongly with that statement. So they're sort of uh, enraged by the thought of um, violations of the law around uh, uh, sex crimes, right? And they also hold these same subjects also held really conspiratorial views. They thought that um, there were these sort of orgies taking place in secret all around them that they didn't know about. And there's this implication that that it's their job to sort of find them and report them and, and control them. And the question for the researchers is really why do these people hold these views? Um, and in answering it, I think they give the clearest example of the authoritarian personality's particular pathology. So sexual desire is what the parents, really in Freud's theory, the father, uh, forbids the children from indulging in, right? Again, this is the Oedipus complex. Um, But children in some families failed 
to internalize this prohibition. They didn't make it part of their own rational conscious mind. So both the desire and the authority remain external to the child. But because sexual desire was so powerful and so instinctual, it didn't just go away. It couldn't be easily repressed. And throughout life, uh, it was constantly, constantly needed to be repressed again, which upsets the balance between within the subject's psyche, right? So across their lives, the children or the children, the authoritarian personalities would call down the authority uh, upon themselves and upon others to enforce this boundary, right? Um, in practical terms, as you alluded to, this has to do with more than just uh, sex. It has to do with um, the relationship between individuals. People with authoritarian personalities, because they were formed in this way, really had a hard time developing true emotional connections, fondness, love. And instead, they view people uh, of the opposite gender and sexual partners, but also, also friends in this kind of cold, rational, manipulative way because they don't have those genuine human emotions that really grow out of a kind of um, healthy sexual development. So again, this is the sort of key that unlocks one facet of the authoritarian personality, which is, um, again, both the sort of perceived or policing of perceived violations, but also a really uh, emotional indifference towards other people. Yeah, one of the things I found interesting was the book's focus on one's self-conception and the various sorts of biases and angles and how telling those can be. Interestingly, this sort of analysis wasn't just about the things people said about themselves, but trying to understand the sorts of biases that were in play as a way of detecting things like a capacity for critical self-reflection. So how did potentially authoritarian persons tend to view themselves? I, I, I agree with you. I think that this is the perhaps the most interesting part of the book, uh, and it seems to me like it's the real um, cornerstone of their argument. In one sense, uh, the way that authoritarian subjects view themselves is an extension of the way that they view their parents and view their sexual partners and their friends. Um, there's this kind of superficial self-glorification, and then that masks a deeper self-contempt. So just as we saw when the subjects spoke about their parents, they would, in one breath, praise themselves, and in the next breath, um, display self-contempt. And they didn't recognize that self-contempt or self-critique as part, uh, as an expression of their conscious mind. They sort of couldn't admit that they were doing that, which is really interesting. Um, another way of putting this is that unlike their anti-authoritarian counterparts, those with authoritarian personalities lack the ability to introspect, to take stock of their thoughts and feelings, uh, to question their motivations or emotions. Instead, they viewed themselves through the same kind of stereotypes that they viewed others. It's useful here to think about an example. Um, there are high-scoring male subjects, for example, who are likely to give an account of themselves in conventionally masculine terms. They would represent themselves as strong, as decisive leaders as hypermasculine, um, and so on. And they would do so often with reference to either, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of uh, paragons of this, of these virtues, like, um, uh, Charles Lindbergh or movie stars and presidents, right? So 
they didn't have a kind of authentic relation to themselves. They only saw themselves in ways that they saw others. And when they were asked why they were like this, um, these subjects often would have just insist that it was something that just it just was that way, or that it was an inherited trait. They were unable to recognize the role of their families and of society or culture in shaping them. And they couldn't uh, give an account of whether they, whether they wanted to be that way or not. They simply couldn't take this kind of questioning view towards themselves. And so the researchers take all this evidence and, and what they argue is that this whole thing is a defense mechanism. Because these subjects have weak egos and have to rely on external supports, um, they can't possibly admit any kind of ambiguity or uncertainty into their mind. It would bring the whole uh, foundation or the whole framework falling down on them, right? And one of the things that, that really strikes me is how explicit the subjects were about this. In their interviews, they would often say things like, I am conventional or I am normal. And it's clear from the way they were talking about it that that was, in their view, basically the best thing you could be. Um, so like I said a minute ago, this is in a sense the culmination of the book's argument. So from the very first studies of anti-Semitism, the central thesis was that, one of the central theses is that those with authoritarian personalities have difficulty seeing other people as individuals. Instead, they see them as members of groups or as embodiments of stereotypes. So we saw that in the way that authoritarian subjects viewed uh, Jews or other ethnic groups or their parents uh, or their sexual partners, right? But what this chapter or what this section of the book shows is that that goes even deeper. Um, those with authoritarian personalities can't even really understand themselves as individuals, right? So the qualities of self-examination and self-critique that really make people people was sort of missing here. And I, I, think, uh, I think Adorno actually puts this in a very interesting way in his unpublished remarks on the authoritarian personality, which are included um, at the end of the Verso edition. And he says in talking about the way the project took shape, that the researchers had first resisted using behavioral psychological methods because this approach understood people as just sort of bundles of reactions to external stimuli, like Pavlov's dogs, right? These, they're just conditioned response to external stimuli. And behavioral psychology doesn't take account of people's abilities to imagine or to judge or to reflect. But Adorno says, um, in the end, it almost seems like behavioral psychologists had it right all along, um, that there are very few people who really do have those abilities to reflect and to imagine and to reason. Uh, many people, and especially authoritarian personalities, uh, really are just bundles of reaction to stimuli as filtered through stereotypes. And the larger importance here is to go back to dialectic of enlightenment. And we see its interactions with um, authoritarian personality here. As I said, Horkheimer and Adorno argue that the culmination of enlightenment thinking is standardization, right? It's the standardization of individuals. And that, uh, that is evident everywhere in authoritarian personalities who are just thoroughly standardized themselves and who can only understand others as these sort of standardized cookie cutter uh, representations. 
Another element that comes into play here are attitudes towards religious belief and practice. Although the authors clarify things are complicated by the variety of meanings religion can play in one's life, so it's not a simple matter of religion tracking onto authoritarianism, but that certain types of religious belief and practice correlate to different personalities. So can you unpack the dynamics discovered here? Right. I think I think one of the things you just said is really important. So it's it's not uh, at all that religious people are authoritarians and atheists are anti-authoritarians. There were plenty of um, atheist authoritarians and plenty of religious uh, anti-authoritarians. So the argument is is more sophisticated than that. As you said, it's more about the structure of belief and and sort of the reason that people held religious beliefs. Um, so the argument here basically is that authoritarian subjects often held religious beliefs because they had been raised to do so and because mid-century America told them that this was the quote-unquote normal thing to do. So again, we see this insistence on conventionalism. These people want to be conventional and normal people have are religious, right? But what's significant about it is that for these subjects, um, Religion was just another source of authority. It's a set of doctrines that drew lines between in-groups and out-groups, or it indicated what was permissible and, and impermissible and so on. In this case, it functions much like ethnic identity, right? Or social conventions or inherited traditions. And one of the things that's striking about religion is that it draws attention to the fact that the content of those kinds of uh, conventions or traditions and so on doesn't really matter at all. Instead, it's just the structure of them. The researchers uh, found this in particular in interviewees' claims that, um, which is something we still hear today, that it doesn't matter what religion people are as long as there is a religion. Society requires religion to function. If we didn't have religion, society would break down into anarchy, there'd be no morality, there would be murder and robbery everywhere. And the researchers interpreted this claim to mean that um, religion played a purely instrumental role for people with authoritarian personality. That all it did, in their view, was subordinate people and establish hierarchies and enforce order. The content as such was really meaningless for religious authoritarians. And again, I pulled a, a, a quotation from one of the interviews that I think really illustrates this. One of the authoritarian interviewees says, quote, oh, I don't pay much attention to religion. I believe in God and all that stuff, but that's about all. And for the, for the researchers, that and stuff is really significant because it suggests just how vacuous and trivial the content of religion actually is. Um, Adorno called this religion shorn of its truth content. All that's left of religion for authoritarian personalities is the veneration of power, um, of authority, and the threat of punishment. And another subject, I think, really encapsulated this when um, they said in their interview, quote, belief is everything. This is the thing that holds you together. And that just shows the role of, um, of these kind of external sources of authority in keeping authoritarian subjects uh, integrated as people. Otherwise, they would just fall apart. One of the chapters deals specifically with prisoners looking to see if there are any trends between criminality and latent authoritarianism. So what were the key personality traits they found in most of the prisoners they interviewed, and how did they track onto potential authoritarianism? The chapter on prisoners is, is one of the most interesting chapters in this long book, full of interesting chapters. Um, 
the sample that they had was uh, white male prisoners from San Quentin Prison in California. And one of the things that's interesting is that on average, the prisoners had a higher IQ um, and more education than the other samples that they took uh, of other populations. Um, and the prisoners that they interviewed were guilty of a variety of crimes, or rather had been convicted of a variety of crimes, ranging from writing bad checks to murdering a state's witness. Um, the prison population was remarkable because empirically it was the highest on any of the scales that they measured. So prisoners scored the highest on ethnocentrism scale, on the conservative ideology scale, uh, on the reactionary morality and religion scales, basically in any way that you could think of, um, prisoners were among the highest scorers. And strikingly, this was the only group in which subjects would freely and openly confess that they had fascist attitudes. So not only did they have a hatred of minorities or a hatred of labor organizations and democracy, they explicitly endorsed a willingness to use force to control and to eliminate these things that they hated. Um, and one of the things that's interesting about this is it leads the researchers to argue that the criminal element, as they called it, plays a crucial role in fascism, um, that, for instance, the Nazi stormtroopers were basically uh, a mass organization of criminals. Um, but the, the sort of more theoretically significant point here is that these observations showed that prisoners were exaggerated versions of authoritarian personalities. They had these same unresolved conflicts in childhood, and as a result, they you know, really lacked the ability to introspect and to criticize themselves, and they saw the world through these stereotypes. Uh, but remember, this is an inherently unstable situation and has to constantly be reinforced. A moment ago, we were talking about religion, and I suggested that for the researchers, religion was one of the things that, that tamped down this conflict, one of the things that um, made it possible for these people to continue to exist. And for criminals, um, the researchers argued something similar. They said, there's this unbearable conflict between the authority that they simultaneously worship and resent, uh, and the um, there's this unbearable contradiction between the uh, impulses that they want to indulge in and the things that they forbid themselves and others. And instead of resolving it through something like uh, religion or something like political ideology, they resolve it through the commission of crimes. So the researchers say criminals go out and commit crimes to fill a psychological need. They have to prove something to someone. They have to prove to themselves that they're not weak. They have to prove to themselves that they're not submissive or that they are masculine, right? So again, in this sense, um, what we see is the same basic dynamics that are at work in the general population, but in a hyper-exaggerated form, and a form with you know, potentially really dire social consequences. Another kind of similar chapter uh, happens towards the end, where they take a specific look at people with particular mental conditions, such as people with a history of psychotic or neurotic symptoms and behavior. So what were the key trends they found between specific mental conditions and political orientation and potential fascism or authoritarianism? Right. Um, this chapter is, I think, one that has tremendous potential, but is somewhat under-realized in the book. Um, for a number of reasons, the data that they collected was incomplete uh, and less clear than could be wished. Um, basically, they... They took a sample population of 120 patients uh, 
at a residential psychiatric hospital in California, all of whom, as you said, are suffering from psychosis or extreme neurosis. Um, but again, the data set was somewhat marred. In, in part, they admitted because there was already a sort of self-selection, people who would uh, go for psychiatric treatment and then people who, when they went for psychiatric treatment, would go to a state hospital as opposed to a private hospital. So the sample size is already somewhat small and somewhat uh, unrepresentative. Um, but by virtue of their condition, many of the patients had trouble answering the questions. Some of them gave completely incoherent answers. Um, some of them refused to answer parts of the questionnaire and so on. But the, so the, if they had all these difficulties, the question is, why should they study this population at all? And the researchers said that their main motivation came from the fact that the same dynamics that affected the general population should, as with the prisoners, be more evident, um, more clearly discernible in these populations. And in part, they make an interesting point about the way that social science works or psychology works. Um, diagnoses are formulated with respect to people who are psychologically ill. Uh, and so if you're looking for the clear-cut examples, that's where you should look. Now, uh, in this particular case, they looked mostly um, or rather exclusively at the problem of ethnocentrism. And they found that there was a statistically significant correlation between psychosis, which is to say uh, the loss of contact with reality, the kind of um, thing that we associate with auditory hallucinations or with delusions of grandeur, and high or moderately high prejudice. So people who were psychotic uh, correlated with people who were moderately prejudiced or moderately high prejudiced. And using this finding, they developed the hypothesis that the personality structures um, that are prone to prejudice tend to result in psychosis when they undergo stress. And the personality structures that are uh, anti-authoritarian, uh, when they're put under stress, tend to result in neurosis. So the idea here is, in part, they're challenging uh, this claim that people who are psychologically ill um, are authoritarians. They're saying, look, Plenty of people that we talk to are psychologically ill, but they're anti-authoritarians. They just tend to be neurotic rather than psychotic. And that makes sort of intuitive sense, right? Because remember that um, those who are anti-authoritarian uh, tend to tolerate ambiguity better and to question themselves and to introspect and to examine their motivations and all of this. So it's easy to see how when that personality gets put under stress, that kind of healthy self-examination turns into a kind of crippling anxiety. Um, and again, I, I guess I would just come back to the fact that there's not as much done in this section of the book as there could be, but both groups of researchers, both the Frankfurt School and the Berkeley Opinion Group, um, were conducting other studies uh, around the same issue at the same time and a little bit later that, that fill out this picture a little bit more, which is an extremely interesting one. So that brings us more or less to the end of the book. So obviously we've done a lot of summarizing of a lot of data, but I'm wondering if you could try and kind of tie together the emerging picture of the authoritarian personality in this book um, and kind of give us a general sense of what sort of person they saw as most potentially su susceptible to authoritarian recruitment. What were some of the main trends and themes they were concerned with? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, again, it, yeah, it's such a massive book that it's hard to sort of step back and, and take stock of. Uh, as I said earlier, um, the final version of the F scale sorted people into nine categories. 
um, ranging from the out-and-out authoritarian at the top of the scale to the genuine liberal at the bottom of the scale. And the authoritarian personalities were basically people who are just sort of latent fascists who could be turned into real fascists uh, under the right circumstances. And the anti-authoritarians or the liberals were people who were basically immune to fascist ideology. But between these two extremes, there are, there are seven categories. And so if we're thinking about the people who are most worrying, um, there are three relevant categories. The rebels slash psychopaths category, the quote-unquote crank category, and um, the manipulator category. And each of these groups had a sort of specific psychological um, condition that wasn't as clear-cut as the authoritarian personality, but nevertheless did predispose them towards fascism. So, for instance, uh, the rebels and psychopaths, uh, the researchers argued, were more masochists than sadomasochists. Um, this included groups like the Nazi stormtroopers uh, I mentioned before, so criminal elements, right? Uh, the cranks were people who had a very tenuous grasp on reality. Some of the um, psychologically ill people that they interviewed, for instance, or, or more generally conspiracy theorists, were also prone to fascist ideology. Um, and then the manipulators, uh, the, the researchers argued that they were narcissists. And again, this isn't quite the same thing as the authoritarian or the full-blown authoritarian personality, but the people still have a tendency to be prone to fascism or to, to accept fascism when it's put forward in front of them. Uh, I think one of the things that's, that's worth noting here is that at the middle of the scale is where the researchers put the ideological leftists and principled protesters. This is surprising because uh, you'd think that they'd be at the bottom, but the researchers argued basically that although they weren't caught up in fascist ideology, these people had a similar personality structure towards people at the top of the scale. They lived according to rigid principles and they couldn't tolerate ambiguity or, or, or nuance or dissent. It's just that the, the principles that sort of um, orbited around that personality were somewhat different. At the bottom of the scale, as I said, were these anti-authoritarian, genuine liberals and those like them who had personalities which were more or less immune to being co-opted by fascist ideology. So again, if we're worried about particular groups, it's those out-and-out -out authoritarians, it's the rebels and psychopaths, the manipulators, the cranks, you know, criminals and conspiracy theorists. Um, but it's important that even as we make these kinds of distinctions, uh, we note a few things. One is that the researchers clearly put a real premium on a certain set of political views. The heroes of their story are not those who are avowedly anti-fascist. So during the Second World War, um, Stalin and sort of uh, global communist movements said, we communists are the opponents of fascism. And that's not what's being argued here. It's also not the principled protesters who are the opponents of authoritarianism. Instead, it's these genuine liberals who the researchers describe as independent, uh, open-minded, and generally moderate in their political and religious views. And the researchers get faulted for this on both scientific and political grounds. Um, for those familiar with critical theory, it's no doubt surprising that Adorno ends up arguing something that seems so, so avowedly anti-Marxist. Uh, again, it's not the working class that's the heroes, it's the middle class. And for other commentators, both in the 1950s and beyond, um, the complaint was that 
this book ends up celebrating a certain segment of the middle class, American middle class and its conventional values. And in scientific terms, I think that we can ask whether the book doesn't end up displaying a certain amount of confirmation bias. Is it surprising, we could ask, that the researchers, some of whom were uh, Cold War liberals and who espoused ideals of the open mind, of individualism, of the marketplace of ideas, is it surprising that they end up seeing people like them as the most important bulwark against fascism? The more um, important point, though, is to say, to note that there is a strong degree of self-doubt that runs throughout the book. Um, Time and again, uh, in his chapters, Adorno really asks himself and asks his readers whether it is morally right to sort people into categories according to um, typologies like the one he created. He worried that even though uh, his intention was to help fight authoritarianism, this practice of categorization was not that different from the stereotypes that, or from the stereotyped pattern of thinking that authoritarians themselves demonstrated. So he says, you know, this is in some sense a, uh, a way to fight authoritarianism, but it seems to demonstrate that same kind of logic um, that comes from the theory of dialectic enlightenment, the same thing that Adorno was so troubled by. And this is a point that Peter Gordon makes really well in the introduction, is that we shouldn't focus too much on the diagnostic categories, and we shouldn't uh, lose sight of the broader point here, um, which is that we need to focus on the forces that induce the development of pathological personalities. Uh, And for Adorno in particular, that force was instrumental rationality or enlightenment thinking. So if, if we're really concerned about tendencies uh, towards fascism, that's where we should direct our attention. Yeah, wonderful. Um, so to wrap things up, this book has outlined a personality that is more susceptible than normal to authoritarian propaganda and politics. But I want to end by also clarifying what can be learned about how to not fall into this trap or to think more critically about how people might fall into it. Um, And I think it's important to note that the authors are not fatalistic about authoritarianism and instead see it as a latent possibility for both individuals and societies. So in closing, what sort of conditions should be pursued and pushed for to decrease the possibility of authoritarianism um, from becoming more prominent in our society? Yeah, that's the big question. Um, I mean, as you mentioned at the outset, the, the book is being republished because it's the 70th anniversary, but it could just as easily be republished because of there's these real affinities between the time in which it was published and our own time, right? Um, both then as now, there, there seems to be this um, widespread worry about um, the potential for fascism in our society, both within the United States and around the world. Um, and there's public concern about what we could do to at least diminish the, the, that potential threat. Unfortunately, um, the text doesn't offer that many specific suggestions. Basically, it calls for more research for the development of more scientific instruments for diagnosing authoritarian personalities. But the researchers really saw themselves as sort of um, inaugurating a new discipline that others would come after them and expand upon. But we can sort of. Uh, elucidate some things that they might have suggested. For instance, if we base on if we follow its psychological theory, we might suggest that something like psychotherapy on a mass scale could work. And that really could help, right? Um, especially for those people who are 
on the authoritarian side of the spectrum, but not full-blown authoritarianism, that it could, psychotherapy could help them to gain that level of introspection and that degree of rational reflection and critique that they missed on their child in their childhoods and sort of diffuse the problem that way. But but really that's only a, a limited solution, right? Because the argument isn't only psychological. It's also about social and economic and cultural forces that create the conditions under which authoritarians emerge. And I think that that's the real lesson of the book here is a kind of, it calls for a reorientation on the part of both scientists and citizens. In some sense, um, what the researchers want to say is that there um, are those who sort of create and disseminate fascist ideology, and there are fascist politicians. And they're bad. They're certainly bad. But where we can direct the most, the energy most usefully is to figure out how to identify and to help those who have the sorts of personalities that would make them likely to accept that fascist ideology. So how can we find and treat the authoritarian? And in a good society, the book suggests, um, there wouldn't be this problem, right? There might be fascist rabble-rousing, but it would fall on deaf ears. If everybody or most people had anti-authoritarian personalities, they would be more or less immune to fascist ideology. But once again, we come up against the fact that the book doesn't offer that many specifics, but they do indicate some things that aren't helping. So they suggest that uh, industrial and consumer capitalism uh, and mass society that promotes conformity and pathologizes difference uh, and a low level of education, all of these things contribute to um, creating the development of more people with authoritarian personalities. And so I think, um, uh, on the one hand, what we should do is to address ourselves to those problems. On the other hand, what we should do simultaneously is to adopt the paradigm shift that the book suggests. We should try to distinguish between the causes of the problem of fascism um, and the symptoms uh, or the expression of political fascism. And I think it's encouraging, at least I think, that you can view this or can see evidence of this reorientation sometimes. It's not uncommon these days to hear the argument that the current political crises uh, around the world and in the United States are really surface-level manifestations of systemic uh, older problems, right? And what this means and what authoritarian personality really should show us is that when this immediate political crisis or set of political crises is passed, what we can't do is lose sight of the underlying forces that created it in the first place, which are both social and psychological. Wonderful. Thank you for all that. So we always like to end these interviews by asking authors what they're working on now or if they have any upcoming projects. I doubt Adorno is doing too much these days, but my understanding is you uh, have some work or something that you're working on that kind of connects to a lot of the things we've been discussing. So could you maybe tell us a bit about what you're working on now? Uh, yeah. So um, uh, I'm finishing one book project now, which is uh, based on my doctoral dissertation. And it's an attempt to, as I said, trace the interactions between empirical social science and critical theory. Um, and so working on authoritarian personalities is, is a big chunk of that. But I'm, I'm also studying a second project, which um, is more directly related, that looks at the concept of authoritarianism um, across multiple scientific disciplines. So it, it examines its 
role in psychological thinking, in political theory, in sociology uh, across the 20th century in both um, Europe and the United States, and an attempt to really to recover the history of that concept and to see how it can be used profitably in the 21st century to, to understand our own situation. Yeah, you definitely have a lot of work cut out for you. So, Charles Clavey, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was, it was a real pleasure. <laughs>